I am Pastor Michael. I want to welcome everyone to our Christmas worship service. And um, what we're going to do is that um, in this sermon, we're going to look at the biblical story of Christmas. And when you look at the stories of Jesus' infancy and his birth, there are the stories that everyone knows, right? Um, The classic stories, uh, magi from the east, bearing gifts for the new king, Um, shepherds in the field uh, who are tending their sheep at night. Suddenly the heavens open, uh, the angels um, cry out, um, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men. Those are the stories that everybody knows. But when you read the Gospel of Luke, um, you'll see that the stories of Jesus' infancy continue. And what happens is that Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, bring him as an infant to the temple in Jerusalem, which was um, the requirement of every devout Jewish family to present their firstborn child for the rites of purification. This was in accordance with Mosaic law. And what happens in in the story is that they encounter a man named Simeon. There's a whole story about him. And they encounter a woman named Anna, who is a prophetess. Now, about Anna the prophetess, all that we're given is three verses. That's it. Three short verses. But I want you to know, in those verses is an entire lifetime of faithfulness and devotion to God. And I want you to know that Anna is one of the most remarkable figures in the Bible. And she lived one of the most beautiful lives that has ever been lived. And today we're going to meditate on her life. We're going to study her life. And in her life we're going to see the meaning of Christmas and the hope of the gospel. So with that in mind, turn to page 4 in your bulletin. We're going to read, actually, um, verses 21 and 22 first to set the context up. And then we're going to read the story of her life, verses 36 through 38. So let me read it for you. This is Luke chapter 2. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of God. So in verse 36, it says, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now, before we dive into her life, I want to pause here for a moment and 
I want to give you a kind of sidebar. It's a, it's a bit of a lengthy sidebar, but it's an important sidebar, okay? I want to pause here for a moment, and I want you to notice what would have been immediately noticeable to the original audience of the ancient world, which is that Anna is a woman, and she is a prophet of God. And the fact that she is a woman and a prophet is one more data point in a sea of data points that shows us that in the early church and in the founding of Christianity, women, women played an important roles of leadership and prominence. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. So, for example, right, if you look at the epistles, if you look at the Pauline epistles, right, if you're familiar with Paul's letters, you know that at the end of every one of his letters, he ends with a list of names. Sometimes this list goes on for an entire chapter. And in those list of names, he's greeting individual people, and he'll usually say a little something about them. And what he's doing is he's, he's honoring them, and he's appreciating them because these were pillars of the church. These were leaders of that church. Now, did you know that biblical scholars did an analysis of those names at the end of Paul's letters? There are dozens and dozens of names, and fully one-third of those names are female names. Again, these are leaders of the early church. Or when you look at the Gospels, when you read the Gospels, you'll notice that included in the larger circle of Jesus' disciples and followers were women, several of whom are cited by name. Women like Martha and Mary, who are given three separate stories about their relationship with Jesus, which shows you their prominence and their significance in the early church. We see this also in the book of Acts. Again, numerous women are cited by name. Women like Priscilla, women like Lydia. Again, these were leaders. These were prominent figures in the early church. I want you to know that no other document, no other set of documents in the ancient world comes even close to the high percentage of women who played a critical role in the early church and in the founding of Christianity. And what makes that all the more amazing is when you consider that in the ancient world was notorious for its low view of women. They basically thought of women as subhuman beings. It was a deeply sexist society. And yet women have prominent roles in the stories of Jesus and in the stories of the early church. How do you explain that? And the explanation is that when you read the Gospels, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see that at every turn, Jesus elevated and honored women, and he treated them with dignity. No other figure in the ancient world lifted up the status of women like Jesus. Do you know how remarkable that is? Several years ago, um, I read a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Excellent book. Rodney Stark is a um, professor, he's a historian at Baylor University, and he's looking at this historical question, how do you account for the rise of Christianity? How do you explain historically how this marginalized, persecuted religion from this obscure corner of the Mediterranean world in three short centuries come? 
completely overtook the Roman world? It's an interesting historical question. And so he wrote this book, and in one of the chapters, he says one of the main explanations, one of the key explanations, is that in the early church, compared with the broader pagan culture of that time, he says the early church, quote, was radically and scandalously egalitarian. And there are numerous examples of this. So, for example, in the ancient world, men and women were strictly segregated. You see this still reflected in the religion of Islam. If you ever go to a mosque, you'll see that in a mosque, when they worship, men and women worship in separate physical spaces. Men are sitting in the front, women are sitting in the back. Usually there's a curtain in between. There's a male space, there's a female space. And this was a way to exclude and marginalize women. The early church was the only institution. It was the only religious organization. We know this because there were numerous competing religions. There were mystery cults. Many of these mystery cults had exclusive male membership, like the cult of Mithras. So in the early church, unique among all the religions of the ancient world, men and women intermixed freely. Men and women worshipped in the same physical space. This was unheard of in the ancient world. Let me give you another example. The Christian view of marriage radical in the ancient world. In the ancient world, women were expected to be faithful, to maintain the integrity of the lineage. Men could philander. There was no problem with it. There was no moral disapproval of men being unfaithful to their wives. And then you have Christianity. And Christianity said both men and women have to be faithful and have to love their spouse. And in a world in which women were extremely vulnerable... This protected women. This included women as full partners in marriage. And so Rodney Stark says, for all of these various reasons, women were deeply attracted to Christianity, and they flooded. They came into the early church. And Rodney Stark says that the estimates, this is based on catacomb records, this is based on all sorts of other different uh, resources. He says the estimate of the early church is that 62% of the early church consisted of women which is remarkable when you consider that in the ancient world, women only consisted of 45% of the general population. The reason why they were below 50% is because women, uh, uh, female babies were often killed because they were considered worthless. They were considered um, worthless in that society. I want you to know that no other religion championed women and elevated their status like Christianity. Today, we live in a modern world in which Women are treated with dignity and they're considered full partners in society. That is one of the gifts Christianity gave to this world. So I just want you to know the heritage of the Christian faith. All right, end of sidebar. I just wanted, you, I just wanted to make that note. So let's look um, at the story again. We're looking at Anna the prophetess. And in verse 36, it continues on. It says... She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So in that culture, it was typical for a woman to be married at 16 years old. Which means, if you do the calculation, because it says that she was married for seven years, she was 23 years old when her husband died and she was left a widow. Now, ordinarily, um, because she was still at a young age, Anna would have remarried. Think about, for example, the story of Ruth. 
The reason for this is that in a male-dominated culture, women were very vulnerable, and therefore marriage provided protection and provision. But she doesn't remarry. Now, the text doesn't say this explicitly, but I believe it is strongly implied. The reason why she doesn't remarry is because God calls her to be a prophet. And he gives her this singular task of waiting for the Messiah and that when he comes to provide attestation, to be a witness of his identity. It's very interesting. If you look at all the um, stories of Jesus' birth, all of his nativity stories, there's this cloud of witnesses surrounding it. So, for example, you have the forerunner, John the Baptist, make straight the way of the Lord. You have um, magi from the east who saw his star in the night sky and they come to, to, get, to bring gifts. You have a host of angels who, who fill the heavens and they declare to the shepherds in the field, today in the city of David has, um, a savior has been born. So you have all of these attestations. You have divine attestation. You have attestation from pagan, you know, wise men from the east. And included among those attestations, God sends a prophet, Anna, to play this critical role of verifying that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Anna becomes a prophet of God. And what happens then is the normal milestones of life, which in that culture for a woman was getting married, bearing children, raising a family. All of those normal milestones are set aside. And then every day she goes to the temple to fast and pray. And she waited. She waited and she waited. And the waiting turned into years. And the years turned into decades. And the decades rolled one after another. So that in the end, Anna was 84 years old. The text says she was advanced in age. So that it had been 61 years from the time that she had become a widow to the coming of the Messiah. I want you to imagine what those years must have been like for Anna. 61 long years. I want you to imagine the the creeping sense, at first very gradual, but then accelerating over the years, this suffocating sense of disappointment and discouragement. I want you to imagine the many lonely nights, the questioning and the waiting for an answer that never came. And in the meantime, things got steadily worse in the land of Israel. In her lifetime, Anna would have seen the rise and fall of King Herod, this murderous tyrant. She would have seen Roman legions marching in, occupying the land, desecrating the land. She would have seen evil and injustice spreading everywhere, the suffering of her people. And so she waited and she waited, but nothing happened. God was silent. And I think that there were so many times, there were so many times when she wanted to give up. 
She must have felt abandoned by God. Maybe she had been a fool to trust God in the beginning. And as the years rolled by, she began to be filled with doubts and anger and bitterness of spirit. I know that many of you in this room, like Anna, are waiting. And you're waiting for God to come and to act decisively in your life. You're waiting for God to clear the road forward so that you can feel useful to Him, so that you can find your purpose in this life. And so you're waiting for God. You're waiting for Him. But it feels like the years are passing you by and you're filled with questions and doubts. And therefore, waiting is agony. Waiting is suffering. It's full of grief. You know why? Because you don't have any control of your life. Because you don't know how it's all going to turn out. And in the meantime, your life is suspended. The normal milestones of life are just passing you by. You can't go forward. You can't go back. And I want you to know, and this is going to be a difficult thing that I'm about to tell you, but it's the truth. The Bible says, when you receive the truth, it will liberate you. I want you to know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, waiting is not an aberration. It's not an aberration. Waiting is the normal lot of every believer. In fact, let me go even further than that. Waiting is the essential activity of the Christian life. To be a Christian means to wait for the Lord. The Bible talks about this all the time, particularly the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 130 verse 5. I Wait for the Lord. My soul waits for His coming. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. And therefore, it's not a question of if you will wait, but how will you wait? And so that's the question we're going to grapple with today in the sermon. How can we wait well? How can we wait with endurance and with faith? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Anna's life. We're going to do a deep dive into Anna's life. And we're going to draw five lessons from it on how to wait well. And so these are the five points. Um, I guess you could think of them as the five sub-points because we're in the middle now. But waiting is active. Waiting Number two, waiting is worship. Number three, waiting is obedience. Number four, waiting makes you a fitting instrument. Number five, waiting gives us Christ, right? So let me say it again. Waiting is active, it's worship, it's obedience, it makes you a fitting instrument for God, and then it gives us Christ. So let's begin. Number one, waiting is active. Waiting is active. When you look at Anna's life, you see that waiting is not a passive thing, it's an active thing. It's an active thing. Because look at what Anna does. Every day, she goes to the temple, verse 37. 
and she worships God by fasting and prayer. These are rigorous spiritual disciplines. And notice in the text it says that she does this night and day, night and day. She fills her life with this single-minded devotion to God. And therefore, what do we learn here? We learn that waiting isn't just whiling away the time. Waiting isn't idleness. Because notice in, uh, in Anna, Anna doesn't just go home and do nothing, twiddling her thumbs. Do you know why? Because eventually she would have given up. Because that kind of waiting isn't strong enough to endure discouragement and disappointment. But instead, look, look at what she does. She gives herself fully in devotion to God. What does it mean to persevere in the faith? It means that when you feel discouraged, it means that when you feel empty, it means that when you're not getting anything out of being a Christian, you don't give in to the temptation to stop praying, to stop reading the Bible, to stop coming to church, but you keep at it. And you keep at it. You keep doing the spiritual disciplines because the only way to endure waiting is to actively seek the face of God. Look at Anna. Look at how her waiting was full of vigilance. Her life was full of effort and energy. That is the only way you can endure. It's the only way. Secondly, waiting is worship. Waiting is serving God. Think about the words waiter and waitress. What does the word wait mean in those words? It means to serve. When you have ladies in waiting, when you have servants in waiting, they're not just standing there, they're serving you. And so when you wait for the Lord, you're serving Him. You're giving Him honor and praise. This is why in the text, Anna wasn't just waiting she was worshiping. And I want you to understand, this is very important, the waiting itself is worship. The act of waiting for the Lord is worshiping God. Or let me put it this way. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the best books I read this past summer is by David Brooks called The Second Mountain. And in the book, he says, there's a, there's a place where he says that life is basically a play that is going on, that is being acted out at two levels. He says that on the surface level, the play is about success and failure in business, romance, politics, right? The, the play is about success and failure in those arenas. And he says most human beings live their entire life on this surface-level play, and all of their anxious energies and all of their thoughts are focused on that. But he says, underneath that surface-level play is a deeper and greater play. And in that play, life is a moral drama. And when you realize that life is a moral drama, then you understand that at every moment... It's either a, you are making either a step towards God or away from Him. And I think this is where it's so helpful. The reason why waiting is so intolerable, the reason why it's so difficult, is because you feel like you don't have control. You feel like this little pawn 
on this giant chessboard. And these big pieces are moving all around you. You feel like you're being acted upon, but you're not an agent in your own story. But if you understand that life is a moral drama, if you understand, if you're living in that second play, then you realize that you may not necessarily have control over your circumstances. In fact, usually you don't. But you always have control of your reaction to those circumstances. You see, if life is a moral drama, you are an agent. And the, and the tension of the drama, the, 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 the moral drama of your life then, is how will you respond to the bad circumstances of your life? How will you bear up with the seasons of waiting in your life? Will you give in to bitterness and self-pity and unbelief? Or will you respond with resilience? Will you endure in faith and humility? And let me tell you, when you respond like that, you're worshiping God. You're saying, God, you are worthy. You are worthy of my whole life. So that's the second point. Uh, waiting is worship. The third point is waiting is obedience. Anna did not know how long she would have to wait for the Messiah, but she knew it was not an option. She had to wait. It was her duty to wait. One of the frequent metaphors of waiting in the Bible is um, the image of the watchman at the wall. You see this all the time, especially in the book of Ezekiel. The watchman at the wall. It's a very vivid image, so think about it, right? If you're a sentry and you're given guard duty to stand at the city wall, you may not leave your post for any reason, right? It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter if it's raining or if it's cold. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if you're tired, if you're sleepy, if you're bored. Because if you have been assigned guard duty and you leave your post, the whole city may be lost. And therefore, God holds us accountable for our waiting. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the parable of the bridesmaids. Do you know this story? Jesus says there are ten bridesmaids. And the ten bridesmaids are waiting for the wedding party, the bride and groom, to come back so that the festivities can begin, so that the wedding celebration can commence. And he says, among the ten bridesmaids, five of them were wise. And they... And they anticipated the possibility of a long wait. And so they brought their lamps fully prepared with oil in it. But he says five of them were foolish and they did not bring lamps with oil in them. And then what happens is in the middle of the night, a cry says, here comes the bridegroom. And then the, the ten bridesmaids immediately jump to their feet. And it's at that moment, the five foolish bridesmaids realize They don't have any oil. And so they say to the five wise, they say, please give us some of your oil. We don't have any. 
And the five wise bridesmaids say, I'm sorry, we don't have enough to share with you. You're going to have to go to the marketplace and get some for yourself. So the five foolish, they rush to the marketplace, they buy some oil, and by the time they get back, the door has been shut. And so they're knocking on the door, they're pounding on the door, please let us in, please let us in. And the master of the house says, go away, I don't know you. I don't know you. It's a pretty frightening parable. What is it telling us? It's telling us that the whole of the Christian life is waiting. In fact, when you read the Bible, you see that the whole history of Israel, they're waiting for the Messiah. And therefore, the waiting, the waiting is a test. Will you be prepared for his coming? Or will you be unprepared? And therefore, the lesson here is we need to be ever vigilant. We need to be steadfast in our waiting. You cannot leave your post. You're a watchman at the wall. God will hold you accountable for how you wait. Number four, waiting makes you a fitting instrument. So here's the question. Why didn't God simply tell Anna one year before the coming of the Messiah? Or better yet, why didn't God go to Anna five minutes before? She's at the marketplace. God says, Anna, immediately go to the temple. I have a task for you. So much easier. Why doesn't God do that? And the answer is that God was shaping and preparing Anna for this mission. In Romans 5, verse 3, it says this, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That means waiting. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. This is strong medicine, but listen to me. One of the purposes of waiting, one of the reasons for all of the suffering and the grief of waiting is that if you let it happen to you, it will transform you into a fitting instrument for God. I want you to think about Anna's life. She's 23 years old when God calls her to be a prophet for this singular task. And maybe we could imagine, maybe Anna thought to herself, the Messiah will come in one or two years. And then I can resume my life. And then I can get remarried I can have a family. Again, in the ancient world, um, women, this is how women found their significance and worth. And so perhaps she said, I still, I'm still young. I can still have all these good things in life. And then the years turn into a decade. She's 33 years old. And this low, rumbling anxiety that has been humming in the background for so many years blossoms into this full-blown panic because the window of time is closing and she can feel it. And then one decade turns into two. She is now 43 years old. And in that culture, to be a 43-year-old widow, your life was effectively over. 
There was no prospect of marriage or bearing children. Think about the story of Naomi. And in that culture, her life was utterly destitute. And her heart was filled with grief and emptiness. Do you know what amazes me about this story? God makes her wait 40 more years after that. It's almost indescribable what those additional 40 years must have been like for Anna. So that in the end, she was stripped bare. In the end, she was a barren tree. There was nothing left. She was empty. And then one day, one day this young couple of modest means comes to the temple. And they're carrying in their arms their infant son. And at the temple they see this 84-year-old woman bent over with age. And she's staring at them. She's staring and she's staring. And then her eyes begin to water. Her hands begin to tremble because the moment that she has been waiting for all of her life has arrived. You see, God stripped Anna bare so that into her empty hands God could give the greatest treasure that has ever existed. You know what amazes me is that on that day at the temple, there were hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds of people. And everyone was bustling about. Everyone was busy with their own lives, but they missed it. They didn't know because their lives were full of good things. But only Anna, who had nothing, she alone could see with the eyes of faith the greatest miracle that had ever happened which is that in this little helpless baby is almighty God in human flesh. We live in such prosperity and fullness. You know, all of us in this room, we live in the Bay Area, which is one of the most wealthy metropolitan areas in the entire world. Everyone in this room, we are the 1% of the world. And I wonder if all of that wealth and prosperity has dimmed our spiritual hunger for God. Here's the question. Do you believe that Christ is the ultimate treasure of your life? Or do you functionally believe? And what I mean by that is don't look at what you say, look at your life. Do you functionally believe that your job, your savings account, having a family, going on vacations... That's your true treasure. And when it really comes down to it, you would rather have those things than you would rather have Christ. I want you to know that the Bible says suffering and waiting, these are gifts. And in those things, God is gently, very gently, taking from our hands the good things of this life. And they are good things. So that God can put the one good thing, so that we can see the dazzling self-sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of Christ. Let me say one more thing before I get to the fifth point. 
You know, in the world's eyes, Anna was a failure. She was an impoverished widow, no accomplishments, no family. And every day as she walked to the temple, people must have just passed her by. Nobody even looked at her. Because in that society, she was worthless. She was a nobody. But I want you to know, in God's eyes, she lived one of the most consequential lives that has ever been lived in the history of this world. And in the constellation of God's people, her star has burned among the brightest. And here we are, 2,000 years later. We don't know anyone else who was at the temple that day, but we know Anna. We're marveling at her life. And because she waited with endurance and with faithfulness, her life will be a lasting monument in the new heavens and the new earth. And so here's my question to you. What are you ultimately living for? Are you living for this life? Are you living for the acclaims and the treasures of this life? Or are you living for the life to come, which will last forever and ever to the glory of God? Fifth point, last point, waiting gives us Christ. Of course, the other side of you waiting is that somebody is coming. In fact, the word Advent means coming. So who is coming? Let's look at the last verse, verse 38. It says, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word redemption there is the Greek word lutrosis. Lutrosis is a very interesting word. It's a very technical and specific word. It comes from the slave markets of the ancient world. And it means to release from captivity or enslavement. It means, um, it means to make a ransom payment. And so what is um, Anna talking about? The redemption of Jerusalem. There's a very important scene in the Bible. It comes at the end of 2 Kings, the end of 2 Chronicles. What happens is the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of Babylon. And the reason for this is a long lead-up, but the people of God have rebelled against them. They've turned to other gods, and the land is filled with evil and justice. And therefore, as a result of that, of that the city of Jerusalem is sacked, and the people of Jerusalem are taken in captivity, in chains. They're walking barefoot and they're crying and they're, they're forced to walk all the way to Babylon in exile. Now the Bible says something really interesting. It says that even though the Jewish people eventually return, eventually they physically return back to Judea, the Bible says the exile never ended. The captivity goes on. You know why? Because the problem of sin has never been resolved. Sin still fractures this world. This land is filled with evil and injustice. And then what happens is, in the book of Isaiah, God gives a prophecy. In Isaiah 9, he says, Into the darkness will come a great light. And his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, And he will bring with him healing and peace and justice. And he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And the Christmas story is telling us that in Christ, 
that light has come. And Christmas is telling us also that he will come again. And so we are still waiting. The church has been waiting for 2,000 years. We're still waiting. Do you know the very last words of the Bible? Do you know how, what's the very last verse of how the Bible ends? In Revelation 22, verse 20, these are the final words of Scripture. It says this, He who testifies to these things says, this is, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And then the Apostle John replies, he says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The word come there is the Greek word maranatha. He says, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord, we're still waiting. And we know that waiting by its very nature is full of grief and suffering. But we know that waiting is not an affliction. It's not you abandoning us. It's not a punishment from your hands. It's a gift. You're refining our character. You're shifting our gaze from the things of this world to the things of God. And therefore, help us to rejoice in our waiting. Help us to give thanks just like Anna gave thanks. We want to live a life like Anna's, full of devotion and enduring faith. Give us that strength. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.